Welcome to the Rock Community Church. Pastor John Warehouse is teaching from the book of Acts. Enjoy today's sermon. Good morning. How are you all? The mothers, of course. Happy Mother's Day. But you know, I've always felt like um, the very essence of the church is uh, the, the women. The women within the church is what makes us tender. It's what gives us emotion. It really is uh, so important. Um, and so, as we wish all of you who have children happy Mother's Day, to all the ladies of our church, whether you're um, married or not, whether you're younger or older, uh, whether you have children or not, we wish you the very wonderfulest of days. We just thank God for you. Thanks, John. Thank you, Mickey. We thank God for you. We love you with all of our hearts. And we wish you nothing but the best. We thank you for what you bring and what you add to our church. And so for all of the women of our church, those with children, happy Mother's Day. Have a wonderful day. Those without, thank you. Thank you for what you do for us as a church. We love you so much. Let's, gentlemen, let's give the ladies a hand. Thank you, ladies. I don't know how excited I could get about this place in Scripture because we are in the most holiest of places. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 2? We've been explaining how this place has taken place. Now, we're at the time where Peter has given his sermon. The day of Pentecost is upon the people. And he gave them warning. He said, just as Joel said, this day was to come. And as we studied the past couple of weeks, we saw that Joel prophesied that in those days, I will pour my spirit upon my people. And so these were those days. These were what Joel called the last days. But what we know now is what Peter explained. These last days, we are still in them. You see, they didn't anticipate that the Messiah would come and that he would leave. They did not anticipate that he would die for the sins of the world. They did not anticipate all of that. And so they figured when the Messiah came, he would then set up his kingdom. And that would be it. But as Peter explained in the the sermon on the day of Pentecost, he said, uh, you put to death, you and the ungodly, and what he was talking about were Jew and Gentile alike, all of them put to death the Messiah. And he died for our sins. And so we are now in a period of time called the last days. We've given it a new name in this age in which we live. We call it the church age. This is a time in which the Lord God has established His church, not only for us, but for the world in which we live. The church, if it does what God has called us to do, will make an impact in our society to such a degree that we will change people's lives. We will see lives being changed. That's why Jesus says you will do greater miracles. You will be able to give life to people who are dead. Unbelievers who come to believe and trust in Jesus Christ and then have the life of God living within them. Just like Jesus told Mary and Martha when their brother was dead in the tomb. She said, if you had been here, if you had been here, Lord, our brother would not have died. And he said, your brother will live again. And she said, I know. In the last days, in the day of the resurrection. And he said, Martha, I am. Remember? I am the resurrection and the life. 
And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, he said. And she said, yes, Lord. And so we were on that time when we can give resurrection life to people by the grace of God, by teaching them the Word of God so that they can come and trust in this same Savior in which we have entrusted ourselves to. And so what Peter does now, starting with verse 41 to the last verse of this chapter, verse 47, he sets down the the qualifications, the guidelines, the, the duties, if you would, of the church. And as I said to you just starting this, this is a probably the most important message that we could ever learn as a body of believers. The message is, what are we like as a church? What should we be like? What is it our obligation? Look back at chapter 1. Look again. Look again what, what Luke writes in chapter 1. He says, the things, the first thing, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had by the Holy Spirit, what? Given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. And I am here to say to you today, as I've said to you for every week that that we've been in this particular place, those orders that were given to the apostles, they passed along to faithful men and women who in turn passed these things along to the next generation. And here we are today in this generation in which we live and these orders, the same orders that was passed to the apostles have been given to us. And so as we have church, there is a specific way that we are to have church. God didn't just leave it haphazard for us to to do whatever we wish. He has given us specific orders what we are to do. Remember what Paul said to Timothy? Timothy, these things that I have given to you, you entrust them to faithful men who will in return entrust them to other faithful people. And that's us. Today we're in that situation. God has given you and me orders. How do we conduct church? What are we to do in church? What is church to be like? And so God makes the guidelines. And Peter spells them out. So that they would know the first church that is established in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And so that you and I would know. What is church to be like? What is our responsibility? Here in verses 41 to 47, we're going to see three specific responsibilities. So vital for you and me that there's no way that I'm going to cover all three today. I just want to cover one. We're going to make this into a three-part series of sorts. We're going to look at verses 41 to 47 for the, the next three weeks. And we're going to see that each week we're going to see that there is, a, there is a definite responsibility that has been handed down to us. There are spiritual duties, there are spiritual attitudes, and there are spiritual impacts that a church must make in the society, in the community in which they live. Now let's read these verses. With that in mind, take a look at chapter 2. Remind yourself, in verse 37, after Peter got through with the sermon, when they heard it, verse 37 said, they were pierced to their hearts. And they said to Peter, they said to the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? He said, you you need to repent. You need to repent, he says, and, and you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins so that you may receive the gift 
of the Holy Spirit. And then Peter ended by saying in verse 40, I want you to be saved from this perverse generation in which you live. So then, verse 41, here we go. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Verse 42, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together. They had all things in common. Verse 45, And they began selling their property and their possessions, and they were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. Verse 46 says, And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Verse 47, Praising God, and note, having favor with all the people. And consequently, because of that, the end of verse 47, And the Lord was adding to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. You see, the responsibility of the growth of the church is not ours. The responsibility of the growth of the church is all in the hands of our, of our Lord. He will add to the number that are being saved day by day. Our responsibility is what is it that the Lord asks of us. And we're going to study that today. Let's pray. Please, dear Father, open up our eyes. Open up our hearts so that we might have the greatest of privileges of all time, and that is to to understand and to explore and to see the very glories of your word. Father, I pray that you would take me aside. Father, uh, let us sense that you are speaking to our hearts this morning, that you're touching us, Father, that you are asking us to do what you have asked the church to do. And so may we not pull any punches. May we not do that, Father. May we just make clear what was given to the apostles who in return gave it to the next generation to where we are now today. May we be a faithful church, faithful servants of your most glorious, wonderful promise, the church. And may we make an impact in the society in which we live for the cause of Christ, Father, we pray. Amen. 3,000 new believers, folks. One message. 3,000 of them were baptized. As we mentioned last week, and, and Scripture proves it out, baptism has nothing to do with your salvation. Baptism, in that time as it is today, is an outward expression of what has just taken place within your, in your heart. It is an, an, an identification with your Savior. But in this case, it was an identification not only with Christ, but it was an identification now with his newly formed church and the other believers. Whether they be Jew or Gentile, they all had something, it says, as we're going to see in the weeks to come, in common, sharing with one another. The display of their having a baptism, publicly identifying themselves with Christ, was extremely significant. You well know, we've, we've talked about it. It was a bold move on the part of the Jews that were in Jerusalem. 
Because as we talked, I think last week or the week before, remember the young man, the man that was born blind and Jesus healed him? And the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day said, who did this to you? And he said, I don't know. So, well, you weren't really born blind, were you? Let's just go ask his parents, remember? It's in John chapter 8. So they go and get his parents, and they call him, and they said, is this your son? Was he born blind? And they say, yeah, yeah, that's our son. Yes, he was born blind. But how this happened to him, we don't know. Next verse says, they said this because they were afraid. Because the religious leaders of the day said that anyone that confessed Jesus would be kicked out of the synagogue. And as we mentioned last week, to be a Jew and not to be a part of the Jewish nation, to not be a part of the synagogue, was mean you were in no man land. You were not a Jew, then you were not a Gentile, you were neither. You had to be a beggar to make your way. And so it was a bold, bold move on the part of the, the people to be baptized, to identify themselves with Jesus Christ in that setting was amazing. For some of them, their identification with Christ cost them. Cost them family, cost them friends, cost them their businesses maybe, cost them their lifestyle, cost them their comforts. You see, at one time, coming to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior was not an easy thing. It cost you something. I mentioned in the first service, Probably God's grace upon me. I don't know. I don't know how it happened. I don't know why it happened. I just know that it happened. When I came to believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I had a few very close friends that I love very dearly. And none of us were Christians. As a matter of fact, we thought Christians were wimps. We thought Christians were people that needed a crutch in their lives. That they, they couldn't handle what was thrown to them. And so let them go to church. Let them be weak. Not us. And I accepted Christ. And I go back to my very best friend, a guy to this day. As a matter of fact, I I thought about it in between services because I gave him a call. We now are friends again. It was his birthday two days ago, and I called him in Florida to wish him a happy birthday. Didn't get him, just left word. I walked into his restaurant and I said, Hey, I became a Christian. He called me every bad name you could think on the face of this earth. He said, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're a good guy. You don't need that. What are you, crazy? Blah, 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 blah. And I'm convincing him, yes, and you need it too. And he says, I don't ever want to see you again. Get out of my place. And he'd said this in a, in a group setting. Very embarrassing to me. If he wasn't so doggone big and tough, I'd have probably fought him. But he would have whipped me. So I walked out of that place alone with my tail between my legs and I started walking back and I thought, well, this is another fine mess I've gotten myself into. I didn't know it was going to be like this. And as I was going home, tears were falling down my cheeks. I don't know where it came from. Now I do, but I didn't then. Something overcame me to such a degree that it was like a, a voice that I could audibly hear. I could almost hear myself say it. And I said on the way home on the Alawai, going to where I lived in Waikiki, Lord, if it's just you and me the rest of my life, that'll be enough. And I meant that from the very depth of my spirit. I don't know what made me say it, but I meant it. There's a cost sometimes to coming to know Christ. And yet today, churches 
make coming to Christ and attending church as easy as possible, as comfortable as possible for those that come. Yet Peter made the cost of coming to Christ, being a part of the body of Christ, very expensive. Yet, within all of that hardship, all of that that they might have to give up to come to Christ, we see in verse 41, 3,000 of them, 3,000 of them were added that day to the body of Christ. And Acts takes it upon itself to shape the doctrine and the guidelines for the life of the church. As we just read, verses 42 to 47 describes what's God's plan for a local body of believers. He set the precedent in the first church, and you and I do not have the privilege to change that. And there are churches all across the United States of America today that are changing the philosophy of church. But what we are seeing here as we're going to study is a purity of devotion to Christ that, that perhaps is unmatched in, in generations since then. And I wrote down in my notes, perhaps, perhaps the Rock Community Church can take up where they left off. If no other church Not that there is no others, there are. But if no other, can we not at least try to be what God has called us to be? Three things is going to happen in verses 42 to 47. So important that I want to take time in it. Number one, there needs to be a spiritual duty that we all understand. Number two, there needs to be a spiritual attitude that we must all undertake. Number three... There must be a spiritual impact upon the community and the world in which we live. First, what we see is they take upon themselves certain spiritual duties. Duties that are required of a true church. By the way, let me just throw this out. We'll see this in weeks to come. Because of their commitment to Christ, what it says in verse 47 is that all of a sudden we see that they're no longer such outcasts. As we're going to see in the next chapter or two, there's going to be another 5,000 that are going to come and join them. As a matter of fact, it says in verse 47, they were praising God and they were having favor with all the people. In the Greek, all the people means not just the people in the church. It doesn't mean just the Christians, but all the people were all the people in Jerusalem, whether they be Christian or Jews, whether they be religious or non-religious. What set them apart with all the people was their heart to do the spiritual duties that God has called them to do. And that was pure and simple. Verse 42. Just three words. They were continually devoting themselves. Continually devoting themselves. To what? The apostles' teaching. That's why we preach here. We can't come to church without our Bibles. We can't come to church without studying through the Bible. Because one of the first calls that you and I have as a body of believers, a church, is to be continually devoted, not to my opinion, but the teachings of the apostles. The Word of God. Some churches... Don't even ask the congregation to bring their Bibles in. 
they have just gone off track of what the, the orders were from God Almighty to the apostles. You and I are to be continually devoted to the teaching of the Word of God. We're also to be continually devoted to fellowship. Just the pure fellowship of one another. We are to be continually voted, devoted, as it says in verse 42, to the breaking of the bread. Now that, that's not just the ritual, simply the ritual of communion. As we're going to learn maybe next week, the, 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 the continual devotion to the breaking of bread is the devotion to your commitment to Christ and one another. Why do we have communion? Our Lord says, I want you to have communion. He says, every time you take of this bread and every time you drink of this wine, you should do it in what? In memory of who I am. But, he says, before you take communion, I want you to do something. You know what it is? You are to examine yourself. Because he asks none of us as believers to take communion apart from cleansing ourselves from sin so that we will be righteous. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to do what? Forgive us our sins. I love you. Forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so the breaking of bread, the continually devotion to that, means that we are self-examining ourselves. And say, God forbid that I have something against this dear lady that I love so dearly. Before I would take communion, I would examine myself and see, you know, I have done her harm. I must go to her and make things right. And so what, what Peter is saying is by continually being devoted to this, we continually cleanse ourselves and we not allow things to happen within the body of Christ that might separate it. That's being devoted to the things of God. And then we are to be devoted to prayer. Now, sadly, prayer has become a weakness within the church, yet it ought to be our greatest asset. And we'll see how that goes. We'll see how the Lord leads us. Our church will be effective in bringing people to Jesus Christ when we display these spiritual values. First one, let's take a look at it. Our spiritual duty is to be continually devoted. Continually devoted. There needs to be a genuineness of your faith by your continuing in your faith. You've heard me say, week after week, you've heard me say, if you listen at all, I don't give a hoot, I don't care where and when and how you came to Christ. I don't. I don't care. That's not an issue with me, nor was it an issue with the apostles. You know what is an issue with me and them? The issue is, how do you and I do what? How do we finish? Are we willing to continue no matter the cost? I'm going to ask you a question. Maybe you could take this home and think about it. Think about it today. What would it take for you to give up on your faith? I said to you a long time ago, in that, that first week, I was maybe a week or two old in the Lord. I don't know. And, and when my friends said, enough, and my friends were everything to me. And when I walked away from that place, and I said, don't know how, don't know why, didn't know anything about Scripture. I was brand new in my faith. And I said, Lord, if it's just you and me the rest of my life, that's enough. That was my commitment. I have weighed that commitment over and over again as I've gotten older. 
And I ask myself often, what would it take for me to say, enough, I'm out of here. And I've come to the conclusion there's nothing. There's nothing you can do to me. There's nothing that anyone can do to me. I'm not stopping. I am going to serve the Lord until I take my last breath, whenever that is. And I would consider, I would encourage you to go home and, and get with yourself alone and get with the Lord and, and ask yourself that question. You might want to take a look at Matthew chapter 16. It says, what will it take for you? What would, what would a person give? Uh-oh. What would a person give help in, in replace of your soul? That is really a bad translation I just did. I want to say another thing. Nothing about it in this, but I want to say it. Mother's Day. Husbands. What would it take for you to say, enough with this marriage, I'm out? What would it take? What would she have to do? What would have to happen? How beautiful does that other person have to be for you to finally say, enough? We were having uh, what we normally have when our kids were really kind of young, real young, middle school age. Kay, as she always did, sensed something was wrong with our family. Something was wrong with the kids. So what we used to have in those days when we were all together in one roof was family family time. You know, call together. Everybody had to call together, and there were no rules. In other words, kids could say anything they want, you know, like, Dad, I don't like the way you've done blah, 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 and I can't hold it against them. We could say anything we want, cleanse ourselves of whatever we want, so that we kind of lay things out on the table before one another as a family. And after we had gotten together for a while, we, my wife found out what was wrong. Both of our kids, their best friends in school, both of their best friends' parents were leaving one another having a divorce. And so both of our kids were thinking, mom and dad are next. And finally that came on the table. And I was asked, I don't remember if it was my son or my daughter, says, would you ever leave mom? And I got down on my knees before their mother. And I told my kids, and I told my wife, there is never anything that you can do that will make me leave you. Never. Nothing. And then I got a piece of paper and I wrote to both of my kids, I will forever be your mother's husband and your dad. After the meeting, they were never, they never, nothing bothered them again. They were fine. They just wanted to know that. Those two questions I might ask you today. When you get alone, think, what would it take for you to leave your faith? What would stop you from having a continual devotion to the Lord? And dads, husbands, what would it take for you to leave your wife? Pretty important questions. Despite the hate, despite the ridicule, despite the persecution that they suffered in those days, they remained, they continued in their faithfulness, their devotion to Jesus Christ, and their devotion to one another, and their devotion to their church. 
We'll see this in the weeks to come. That, my folks, is the mark of genuine salvation. That is a mark of true Christianity. When you have a a commitment in your life to continue in your faith no matter the costs. Jesus said it, John chapter 8, verse 31. He says, if you abide in my word, in other words, if you continue in my word, then you are what? Truly what? Disciples of mine. Know what he says? If you abide in what? My word. Some churches are opening their doors and saying, you don't have to bring your Bible in. It makes people uncomfortable. Oh, really? If you abide in my word, then you're truly disciples of mine. In contrast, John wrote in 1 John 2.19, you don't need to turn there, they went out from us, he writes, because they were not really of us. If they had been of us, he said, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they were not really of us. A true church is marked by the believers committed to continue in their faith. That a church is composed of believers should be obvious to all of us. Many churches today are made up largely of untaught because they're not being taught from the pulpit the Word of God. And unsaved folks, immature at best. Two of my dearest friends, I don't see them often because we're all busy. Pastor Chuck Smith, he said, you know what we're raising in the United States of America today, John? I said, no, what, Chuck, what are we raising? He says, we're we're raising a group of retarded believers. Because pastors across the United States of America don't have the guts to open up the Bible and teach it to their people. He said, you know why? He says, because most of them don't know it themselves. Dr. Dr. John MacArthur told me almost the same thing. He said, because of churches today, the way they're being formulated and not studying the Word of God, he says, I believe they're going to usher in the coming Antichrist. Because when, when he comes in, most people that call, call them so, quote, believers, they were not going to even, they won't know him. They bumped into him because they don't know the Word of God. Churches today are made up of untaught, unsaved folks. In fact, some churches amazingly try to design their church where non-Christians can feel comfortable. Now listen, I'm not, I'm not into making an unbeliever feeling uncomfortable, but for the grace of God, I'm not going to stop teaching the Word of God because unbelievers are here. As a matter of fact, the only thing that will really change an unbeliever's life is the Word of God. God says, it is my word that will go forth. It is my word that will not come back empty. It is my word, God says, that will do what it has been designed to do. Not my thoughts, not a pastor's thoughts, but God's word. And so it's the goal of a church to be devoted to holiness and righteousness in all areas of their lives. And Peter says this. No, excuse me, Paul does. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. You see, the membership of a church, the service in the church, is to be done by the believers of the church. If that seems harsh, I want you to listen to what Paul says. Paul says, trying to achieve God's goal with unbelievers ain't going to happen, he says. Watch. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. He says, 
Do not be bounded together with unbelievers. What partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Paul says you can't do that. The church is to be built around you and me as believers learning about our faith. In Ephesians it says that the the church was given apostles and and evangelists and pastor teachers. The church was given these people for the equipping of us, the saints, for the work of service. That's why a church opens its doors. We open our doors so that you and I can learn the things of God so that we can go out into the society in which we live and make an impact. And God forbid that you might hear me think I'm saying that that I don't want unbelievers here. No, on the contrary, I do. But when they come here, they're not going to hear some watered-down message. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't even guess how many churches today are probably preaching on Mother's Day and how wonderful mothers are. We know mothers are wonderful. Preach the Bible. Preach the Bible. And first, thanks. Listen to what Paul says. You want to see a, you want to see a church that Paul puts his hands upon? Look at the church in 1 Thessalonians 1, chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Paul describes this church. Can you find 1 Thessalonians? It's after 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, and all of that. Philippians, Colossians, and then 1 Thessalonians. Paul described the people in that church as being in the Father, in the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. Watch. Look what he says in verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. In God the Father... And the Lord Jesus Christ. Look down at verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. What set that church apart, they were in the Father, in the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. But also, they possessed the very Christian values that we are supposed to try to possess. Look at verse 3. Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope. Faith, hope, and love. Verse 4 says that God chose them. Look, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. You know, we talked about that last week. Is it our responsibility or is it God's responsibility? You know, there are those that say, it's all God, it's none of you. And there are those that say, you've got to come to Christ. And the Bible teaches clearly, it's both. We have a human responsibility and God's divine purpose. And He draws us to believe in Him. And we make a choice to do so. Now, as I get older in the Lord, I I find out more and more how little, little, little I had to do with it. It was Him all the way, dragging me, kicking and screaming until I said, yes, Lord. But I said, yes, Lord. He chose us. And what are we to become? Look at verse 6, this church in Thessalonica. It says, you have become imitators of us. That's the apostles. You have become imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They became imitators of the apostles. And so you and I are too. And so therefore, what made this church really just like a gem in their society, in their community, is look. Look at verse 7. 
so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Acacia. I tell you what I, I pray for is us as a church. I pray that we will make an impact in this community in which we live. There are churches left and right getting away from studying the Bible. You know why? They want to become an entertainment center to the community in which they live. They want to become a place where they, people feel comfortable coming. And so don't bring your Bible. God forbid, Christians, don't bring your Bibles because if any unbelievers come in, they won't have a Bible. They're going to feel out of place. Oh, okay. Let's make the church like the world instead of making the world like the church. Now, that's not what we'll do. We're going to preach the gospel. We're going to stand firm on it. And we hope, and that's my prayer of prayers, that we will convict pastors and churches that we will become an example if they will want to follow the teaching of the Word of God. Conversely, Jesus Christ Himself Turn to to Revelation, the last book of your Bible, chapter 2. Look. Jesus had something to say about those that were infiltrated with unbelievers, just like Paul did. In Revelation chapter 2, it says in verse 12, it says, To the angel of the church of Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. That's Jesus speaking. Best listen. Best listen. He says in verse 13, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. You hold fast my name and you didn't deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, uh, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Seems interesting to me there was just one, that our Lord just mentions this one guy. I don't think I'd have the courage to do what he probably did, but by gosh, I would love to be mentioned. I would have loved to have been that faithful. But he says in verse 14, Jesus is speaking, I have a few things against you. Here's why. Because there are, because you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam. That's, that's the teaching against the word of God. Who kept Balak and put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and commit acts of more immorality. Verse 15, so you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, I think it's pronounced. So he says, you better repent. In other words, the teaching of the Nicolaitans were, was against this. And so Jesus himself says, you, you can't mix. You can't mix your church. You can't have both. You've got to have one. You've got to be continually devoted to me, Jesus says. You see, to fail to execute... Excuse me, that was really wrong. To fail to exclude anyone from leadership who is not walking with the Lord is a tremendous mistake in the church. A lot of very difficult things can happen. I know. Only disunity, only dissension can result when those who serve the Lord try to work in harmony with those who don't. Forgiveness should be a staple in every church. Above all of that, to believe, bring unbelievers into the body of Christ and to make them feel they have a sense of security would harm their coming to know the true Lord. Harm them from getting to know and understand what's in here 
so that they can really be convicted of their sin and understand who Jesus Christ truly is and therefore who they must be. I want to close with this. There is no purpose of a church, whether you call it a secret church or uh, uh, culturally uh, relevant, uh, whatever name a person might give their body of believers, whatever their movement might be, nothing within a church should be undertaken that alters God's designed plan. God's designed plan for us is to be continually devoted to four things. His teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. That's church. Everything else is just a spin-off. Some of you might have a, a desire to have a, a ministry with motorcycle people in, a, in the inner city. God bless you. We will help and, and, and do that. We will do whatever it is that you have a plan to do. But within the walls, we will constantly devote ourselves to the teaching of the Word of God, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to have prayer for one another. The other day, I wasn't able to go. This is the most precious story. One of our members, um, Wes, are you here? Is um, Fred here? Am I able to say what happened? Ken, you don't know, do you? Um, Who said sure? The other day, 35, 35 of our people, 35 of our people went to pray for Jeff Allward. Um, couldn't fit in his room, so they met in the lobby and they prayed for him. Am I able to tell a story about Jeff to its completion? Yes. Thank you, Wes. 35 were praying. While they were praying for Jeff, there was a lady on the other side of the hospital um, um, lobby was observing all this. She walked over and she said to those 35 people, would you pray for my husband? He's being, um, he's being operated on right now. They said, of course, and they surrounded her and they prayed for her husband. But we found out later it came through his operation perfectly. One of our people got down on his knees and opened the Bible and started quoting Scripture to him. Another person across the lobby saw this take place. She, walked, she or he walked over and said, Would you mind praying for my loved one too? That's what a church does. That's when a church is really devoted continually devoted to doing the things that God wants us to do. It turns out, Jeff, who is a part of our church, has been given only a year to live now. It's, um, it, it's going to be fatal. And they just found out. And so I'm passing it along to you so that you can love on Carla, so you can love on him and you can pray for him because he's not dead yet. And maybe the Lord will turn it around. Maybe the Lord will do a miracle. We don't know, so we'll pray. But that's what a church is. A church is continually devoted and nothing should undertake or nothing should undermine 
God's divine plan for a church. To try to just change it a little. Just We don't have all the people coming that we want. There's so many people. Let's, let's change the service and make it comfortable for them to come in. Gets offline. That's not what we've been called to do. If you're concerned about them, get Billy Graham here. Get an evangelist. That's their ministry. A church is to minister to one another. A church is to equip one another. A church is a place where we as believers, we as believers are continually devoted to the things of God and to one another. Now, we've just started this church. There's nothing, nothing that Satan would love to do more than split us. Nothing more would make him happier. And that's your decision and my decision to be continually devoted. What would it take for you? What will it take for you to say enough? I've had it. I've had it up to here. I'm out. I pray with all of my heart that you'll be able to get along with the Lord and with yourself and just say, Lord, with all the sincerity of your heart, don't, don't make it phony. I'm in for the long haul. Folks, our spiritual duty is to be continually devoted to our Lord, the fellowship of believers, and the church. And so this is going to be a fun study for me anyways. I hope it is for you to find out what it is that we're going to ask of you. And you're going to find out hardly anything. Just to be continually devoted And we'll try to help you on that path. And I'd like for you to help me as well. We need one another back. Dear Father, thank you so much for your kindness. To be a group of people that have the privilege, privileges of privilege, and that is to be continually devoted to the things of God. As my good friend Paul prays, who are we? Who are we? That we have been given such a wonderful, wonderful opportunity and so Father may we walk faithfully with you all the days of our lives as I've mentioned over and over again Father I don't care I really don't how and when and where and why a person has come to Christ that's not important but Father I do care I do care how we finish and I pray that we will all finish strong continually devoted. And then I believe those that 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 responsibility, that duty, that that call upon our lives, I believe will allow you to say when we stand in your presence, well done. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your rest. May we be a church that will not compromise not one minute. Thank you, Father, for these people. I love them more than life itself. God bless the moms and all the women of our church. Father, please, let this be a very special day for each of them, I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I love you so much. Thanks for being here. God bless you. Have a great day. I love you.